We live in a world where we read, read a lot of news articles. How many news articles have you read? <laughs> How many have I read? A lot, we'll put it that way. One in particular has stuck out um, as they all kind of mesh together. I had one that just really stuck out. It says, welcome to 2020. What has literally taken place in 2020? And then they gave a list of things that have taken place in 2020. And I just want to, you know, read a couple. A cyclone in East India and Bangladesh killing more than 80 people it took place in 2020. Remember the Ukrainian jetliner crashed in, um, in uh, Iran, killing 176 people. It was on the news. That still happened in 2020. Remember, we're only six months into 2020. Earthquakes in Turkey and the Caribbean killed six, uh, 41 people. Uh, Kobe Bryant's um, helicopter crash um, was a devastating event for um, America, a shocking event for America. And uh, it was happening in 2020. Australian uh, bushfire destroying 5,900 buildings and killing 450 people. You know, that was one of the most devastating events that has happened in Australia, an event that they have never experienced before. And also, if we just look back a little bit, you know, how many buildings, housing developments have been even destroyed here in um, America in the last couple of years. But the most devastating event that happened in Australia took place in 2020, and we're six months in it. Devastating floods in Indonesia, killing 66 people. The tail volcano erupted in the Philippines, killing 6,000 people. Um, A volcano killing 6,000 people. What's a history of uh, volcanoes killing people? Did you know that in 2020, that volcano that took place in 2020, that volcano is number three for the deaths in regard to a volcano erupting? In fact, you can go back. The first one is AD 79, uh, Ves Uvas. Vesuvius took place and literally completely destroyed Roman cities. That's a volcano, Mount Vesuvius, completely destroyed Roman cities. That was the most that they killed. They don't even know how many it was. But then also the other one that took place was in 2011 in Cascross A. And you hear what Cascross A? What was Cascross A? Mount Cascross A. What, what, what is that? And uh, that was actually the tsunami that took place that killed 36 hundred people in 2011, and then we have the tail volcano killing 6,000 people in the Philippines happened in 2020, which would be number three. It's just really interesting. The devastation has taken place in our world in 2020. Coronavirus pandemic killing 344,484 people and shutting down practically the world economy, and I think all of us have had an impact even from, from that. I talked to somebody who was 95 years old and asked the question, Did you, have you ever seen anything like this before? And he's like, I have never even heard of anything like this before um, in my life. And yet it's taken place in the year that we're living in. And then the riots in the streets across the United States. Pastor D mentioned last week that um, two weeks ago we went on the Rogue River. And um, before we went on the Rogue River, you know, I read the news. Sorry, it's on my phone. I open it up and I look through the news. And I looked on the news before I went on the Rogue River. And it was all about the coronavirus. You know, keep social distancing. Stay away. Make sure you get close to nobody. Keep public gatherings at a complete minimal. I shut it off and then I go into the country. Lions and tigers and bears and rivers. That's all there was. No satellite or anything. Go into the country for four days. And then I come out and I go like, okay, well, where's the coronavirus at? And I pop on the news and I see our streets just pack full of people in America and rioting on the streets. It's like, well, what happened to the coronavirus? And it was one, two, three. You know how it works on your phone. You got one, two, three, four, five, six. It's like the coronavirus disappeared. And something else has taken place and has nothing to do with social distancing. It has everything about gathering together. 
together. The reason why I mention that is because it's just amazing how fast the news changes, all the way from one to a, another. Just what's going to happen next? <laughs> Do we live in uncertain times? We can just say, yeah, we live in uncertain times because change, things are changing so fastly, so quickly. But how do we approach these uncertain times? In fact, is there a way that we can approach these uncertain times uh, without any fear? I mean, is that even possible? Um, when you look at the Bible, um, the Bible is proclaiming from the top of its lungs, you can approach uncertain times with completely no fear. And if the Bible is speaking from the top of its lungs, you can approach uncertain times with no fear, you might want to ask the question, well, how do you do that? Is there any way I can go through these difficult times and literally not have fear? Well, if you do it, we've got to look in the Bible and try to find fearless people and, and see why they weren't fearless. And I, so I'm scanning the Bible. You know, where are some fearless people in very horrific times? And I ended up in um, Hebrews chapter 11. And here are some people in some very uncertain times. Hebrews 11, 35, 38. It's not in your notes. I'm just going to read it. Others were tortured and refused to be released. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others still were chained up and in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, wandering in deserts, mountains, and caves, and holes in the ground. A little bit worse times than we're dealing with right now. (laughs) These people are being faced with horrific times. But reading in between the lines, others were tortured and refused to be released. What does that say? That means that they were okay. (laughs) They were okay in uncertain times. If they're refusing to be released, they're not only okay, they're they're even at peace in uncertain times. If they're tortured and refusing to be released, they have something that's inside of their system that is extremely powerful, that is carrying through, that they are carrying through these horrific uncertain times, obviously more, even worse than those times that we're in, that's carrying them. I want to ask the question, what do they have? Because if they have it, Maybe I can have it. If they have it, maybe I can have it. Well, Hebrews 11 is one of the most popular chapters in the Bible. They call it the faith chapter. And uh, this is the passage I just read. It's from the faith chapter, these people with faith. So if you want a fast answer on how to survive uncertain times, the fast answer is one word, is faith. Just have faith. But that word faith is almost an irritating word to us. And the reason why it's an, an irritating word to us is because people walk in my office and people come up to you and because you're a Christian and you have an answer and they say, you know, I am going through the most hardest times of my life right now. Can you help me? And the quick answer is, yes, just, just have faith. And they look at you and they go, okay, just have faith. Faith in what? Well, faith in God. I'm done. There's the answer. Walk out the door. And then they walk out the door. Or I'm getting something that's huge in my life, that's a huge obstacle, and I need to know how to get over it. What's the answer? Well, just have faith. If you tell me how to get a drink of water, I know how to get a drink of water. If you tell me how to have faith, how do I do it? I mean, how do I do it? What is the hardware? What's the nuts and bolts that literally will carry me through the most horrific times in my life? Yes, the answer is faith, and we know that the answer is faith, But for the next five weeks, we're going to open up chapter 11, the faith chapter, and we are going to try to understand the nuts and bolts of faith that would literally carry you through the hard 
times because the faith chapter gives you those nuts and those bolts. So number one, we'll start out with, to be fearless in uncertain times, you must have focused faith. The passage that we're going to be looking at is Hebrews 10, 38 to 39, and then also Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. So you might think, well, that's in two different chapters. Well, it's right at the very base of 38, and then as they open up into the, uh, around the base of chapter 38, and then it opens up into chapters 11. So these two passages are connected. And uh, when, uh, if you look in the Greek text, they didn't have chapters in the original Greek text. They just had everything connected, and we put chapters in there so we can understand it and break it up a little bit more so we can put it into our box to give us a, a perception of it. Um, but we're going to take those two and put them together. I know there are two different chapters, but the reason why I want to take that last verse in 38 is because it's going to launch us into one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible, which is the faith chapter 11. Before we get launched into it, what does 38 say? And then what does 1, 11 say? Let's read it. Hebrews 10, 38 through 39. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. Now, Faith is being sure what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Two things are mentioned in this passage. Two very powerful things are mentioned in both these passages. Let's just, what, what are they? Number two, faith is built on what you know, not on what you do not know. Faith is not grasping to the unknown. When we say the comment, you're really struggling, what should you do? Have faith. I will tell a lot of people perceive that I'm grasping onto the unknown as I'm walking through this situation. Faith is not grasping onto the unknown. Faith is not trusting in a mystery. Faith is not trusting in something that you can't even imagine. Faith is very focused on something you can understand. Faith is very pointed on something that you literally no. So when we say have faith, we're not just throwing our emotions into the air and hope that it lands somewhere. Maybe God will give us some TNT to get us through all the stuff that we're going through. That's not faith. Faith is extremely focused according to the, this passage. Well, where is it focused to? Uh, we'll just say that there's a couple strong rocks that it's focused to. There's a couple stones, a couple foundational pieces that this faith is focused to, and we see it in our passage. The two places before we go into it is faith is anchored to the rock of salvation, and faith is anchored into the rock of glorification. So let's just look at the passage and work through it as we see this rock. Hebrews 10, 38 through 39 but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. You are not a person that should be shrinking back and being destroyed. You are not a person that should be fearful. We are Christians and we are not people that should be fearful. Why? It gives us the answer. But you are those who believe and are saved. We are not going to shrink back and destroy because we are anchored into a rock of our belief and salvation. This is the rock that we're anchored onto. Now, where did this rock literally take place? This rock foundation is laid 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth and lived a perfect life. And when he lived a perfect life, well, I couldn't live a perfect life. He did, but when he lived a perfect life, he said, I will die in Mike's stead. 
I will die in your stead. I will die in people's stead because they cannot live a perfect life. I will live a perfect life and then I will go to the cross and I'll pay the price that you are incapable of paying. I will pay the price you're capable of paying by paying all your sins upon my shoulders. And then I will go to the grave and I'll be buried. And then I will rise again. And therefore, Mike Dadera and you and everybody has the opportunity to be alive. You once were dead, but now you can be alive if you believe in me. You were once was lost, but now you can be found if you believe in me. You were once an object of wrath, but now you can be a vessel of mercy if you believe in me. You were once able not to survive the situation that you're in, but because of salvation, now you are able to survive the situation you're in. You were once able to have no fear and no structure and no foundation when you walk through a coronavirus with people dying next to you, but now, because of salvation, you are able to walk with strength, fearless, and power through a situation that is now at hand. Today is not the worst day of your life. And today is not the worst day of my life, no matter how bad it looks. The worst day of your life and the worst day of my life will be the day that I die. What's going to happen the day that I die? Every single person is standing literally on a trap door. And as we're standing on this trap door, this hatch, whatever you want to look at, standing on this hatch, that hatch is all of a sudden going to release, and you don't know when it's going to release. And I'll tell you that when it releases, it's called death, when it releases, what's going to take place? You are literally going to fall into abyss. I'm just trying to give you sort of a picture. I don't know the exact picture. But you will fall into abyss, and everything that saved you will no longer be available to you. Ask the question, what's saving you right now? As you've fallen into this abyss, oh, I need the American Constitution. I mean, sometimes we're grabbing a cold to the American Constitution. It's got to save me. But when you fall into the abyss, it's not American Constitution that's going to save you. All your money is not going to save you. All your wealth is not going to save you. All your position is not going to save you. Even if you were the president of the United States, nothing is going to save you when that hatch drops. There's only one thing that's going to save you. And it's not going to be hand sanitizer or even toilet paper. It's going to be the rock of salvation. Because everything will be released when you die. And when everything is released, you're only going to have one item. And it's going to be Christ or it's not going to be Christ. This is the rock that they held on to. The first rock that they held on to. But let's continue the passage because there is one rock called the rock of salvation. But as we're going into chapter 11, the author, who we do not know who it is, gives us another rock to hang on to to survive this world. Here's another rock that he hangs on to. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. If you look at the word now, what now is doing is expressing what further took place. In other words, if you believe and have the salvation, now means, oh my goodness, there's another rock. There's another rock that you get to hold on to so tight. There's another rock that you get to lay your foundation into. There's another rock out there that you get to grab a hold onto as you're walking through this horrific times. And what is, what is this rock? The rock of being sure what we hope for. What is sure of what we hope for? Everything you've ever dreamed, everything you've ever wanted, everything you've ever needed as a, a human being is going to happen the day after you resurrect and look at Christ right in the face and sends you to glory for the eternity with him. Everything is going to open up in the last day. 
In the last day when Jesus Christ returns, everything you have ever desired, if you believe in him, is going to open up into your face and everything you hoped for is going to happen. And then what, for certain of the things, even though you do not see it right now, it is still going to take place. So think about this. There's two different stones. There's a stone that exists 2,000 years ago that we can hang on to. And there's a stone that exists, what, during Christ's return that we can hold on to. Two major foundations that we can hold on to. Now, they're definitely connected because the death saves us, but his resurrection thrusts us into the future and gives us life. So yes, it's in the past and it's in the future. Faith is focused. It's not reaching out in the air. It is very focused, and we'd ask the question, where is it focused? It's focused 2,000 years back, and it's focused into the future that is ahead. Psalms 112, 7 says, He will have no fear of bad news if his heart is fixed. I know, that says, I know it says steadfast. It's the same thing. I like the word fixed. That's in the NASB. If your heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Fixed people are strong people. If you are looking for a CEO of a company, what are you going to find? Who are you going to look for? Are you going to look for somebody who's flaky? Or are you going to look for somebody who's fixed? I mean, we know this from the world. If you want somebody strong, you've got to have somebody that is completely fixed, determined, powerful, located in one area and said, this is who I am. Now, they can be as stubborn as a mule and very frustrating, but they are not weak. How many children are starving for a dad who's fixed on a rock that is stable? that somebody they can, they, children can lean on, a mother that they can lean on. Fixed people are literally strong, but it does determine where you're fixed on to per- determine on your strength. The challenge in this faith chapter is fix yourself on 2,000 years ago and fix yourself and your focus on the future of Christ's return. And as a result, according to this passage, when the fear of bad news comes, you'll be all right. Why? Because you're fixed. So just give you a general statement. Number three, the heartbeat of faith looks back 2,000 years and forward to the coming of Christ. We hear the advice consistently, and I'm going to say it's all right advice because in the context of the advice that's given, um, it's good advice, and that is do not live in the past. Um, do not look back. Let go of the past. Well, when your mother is saying that or when other people or counselors are saying that, what they're saying is if you look back in the past, there's things that are hurting you, and as they're hurting you, let go of them so you can move forward. But the heartbeat of the Christian life is not only to live in the past, but to literally be obsessed with the past, to literally be passionately focused on the past, to literally be consumed with the past, to be even taken away by the past. The past is what is literally going to drive us. Let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. We'll ask the question, why do you believe in God? Actually, I'm going to ask it. why do you love God? Why do you love God? And people will come up with an answer. In fact, we can fabricate an answer in our mind right now. Uh, what is your answer when you say, why do you love God? What would your answer say? Um, many people would say, you know, I love God because he makes me happy. And he does. And that's the reason why I love God. I love God because he gives me a joy that is so complete that I can't even understand and comprehend. I love God because he has given me a productive life. I love God because he has given me a beautiful law that I can read and understand and be successful in life because of his beautiful law that he has given me. Therefore, that is the reason why I love God. I love God because he's given me the guidelines of marriage. 
And after he gave me the guidelines of marriage, I have a blessed marriage because I followed underneath the guidelines. This is the reason why I love God. I love God because he won't stop blessing for me. I love God because he won't stop caring for me. We have all these reasons of why we love God, but if you are anchored to any of those reasons why you love God, your love for God is too weak. In fact, your love for God is puny. Your love for God is shallow. Your love for God will be swept away in times because everything that I mentioned is conditional. As long as God gives me this, I will love this. See, what we do is we live in the future and then we determine and build our theology on the love of God of what literally takes place in the present and that's not the way God works. The way God works is that you want to see how much I love you? You travel back 2,000 years. You travel back 2,000 years and you get to the bottom of the cross and you look up and you see that cross and then you will understand how much I love you. Do not love God for what he does. Love God for what he did. Because what he did is literally where he is trying to travel us back to focus on him. Because that is his greatest expression of love. If you love God for what he does, you're the one that's coming up and fabricating the God in your own mind. But when you go to a cross, you can't fabricate God in your own mind. You sit at the foot of the cross 2,000 years back. It is, this is what love is, that he laid down your life for you. Now you love your brother. It all of a sudden opens up power and strength. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. It's a verse we've memorized. It's a verse we know. But it's a verse that we pass over very quickly because we know it so well. But if you look at the fourth word, what does it say? For God so loved. (laughs) What is that? That's past tense. That's not present tense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whole verse is doing one thing to you. It is traveling you back 2,000 years. It's not saying God loves you. It is traveling back and saying God loved you. And the reason why it's saying God loved you because he wants to express how much he does. When we define God's love in the present tense, we start making God up into our own mind. I have cancer and I prayed, and when I prayed, God didn't answer my prayer, and now I'm on life support. God doesn't love me. You know, that's, that's, that's not the way it works. You're so focused on the present tense that you're defining God's love, and God's love doesn't work that way. I sin too much. Have you ever heard that? There's no way that God will accept me because I've sinned too much. We can easily come up with that conclusion if we start looking in the present tense and start defining God's love but how many people can travel back 2,000 years and say the words, God, you do not love me enough because I sinned. Therefore, what you're doing now in your outstretched arms and your death on the cross is not powerful enough to forgive me. You can't do that. It will shut your mouth really, really quick. How many people are going to go to hell because they think, you know, I'm just too bad for God. And what they're doing is they're fabricating God in the present rather than the past when all the power is coming back 2,000 years ago. In fact, we even build our theology on it. If God loved the world, why is there pain and suffering? (laughs) You ever heard that comment? (laughs) Comes out pretty consistently. What are they doing? They're looking at the present. As they're looking at the present, they're defining God. God's saying, don't define me in the present. Define me of what took place at the cross. The cross defined the Old Testament as it's working up towards it, and the cross defines the New Testament. That's where it is at. So definitely look back. I just want to look at John 3.16 in the Net Bible, which is closest to the Greek, 
And the reason why you probably don't even know it is because the Net Bible won't sell because it doesn't say John 3.16 like it's supposed to say. This is what the Net Bible says. For this is the way God loves the world. He gave his only son. He's showing us how much he loves the world. So why do we doubt in this world that God loves us? See, these people that were walking through these difficult times, these people that were walking through the times where they were being even martyred, they didn't doubt God loved them because they were looking back. They weren't looking the present. They were looking back. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, let us run the race with perseverance. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see that passage? It mentions the two. It mentions the cross, and then sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. It goes back 2,000 years, and then it goes forward, clear into the future. But let me read this again a little slower. Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us that God put in place for us. It is not saying let us go on to this race and fight it. It says just run no matter what comes your way. Run through the valleys. Run through the mountains. Run through the ugly. Run through the mean. Run through the nasty. Run through the viruses. Run through the war. Run through the rioting. Just keep on running. Don't fight. Just keep on running. But as you run, do something. What's the word? Fix. (laughs) Oh, faith is so focused. Fix your eyes on Jesus. By doing this, what's he going to do? The verse gives us, he will perfect our faith as we are walking through it. If our heart is not just sent out there, but if our heart is literally fixed. And then he gives us an amazing example, the most awesome example in entire scripture, or even in the entire planet. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. What? The joy and the cross being in the same sentence? For the joy set before Jesus, what is enjoyable about the cross? But yet they're in the, the, same, the same sentence. For the joy, scorning to despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, what has taken place? Jesus' heart is so anchored into the past and so anchored in the future, and the cross is just an explanation of getting people into the future who are lost in the present. See what Christ is doing? His anchor is somewhere else, and our anchor is supposed to be somewhere else. When we were newlyweds, my wife and I, um, I mean, we were brand newlyweds. I think it was in the first year. Uh, I took her on many rivers and said, let's go rafting. And and when I, before I was married, it didn't matter what the weather was like. It didn't matter what the season. It didn't even matter what the month was. I just, you know, let's go rafting. Yeah, it's January. Who cares? Let's get on a river. We'll go rafting. So sure enough, we'd go rafting. January, February, March, whenever the water was good, that's when we went rafting. And so she's a newlywed and she doesn't understand me very well, but I'm like, it's February. Let's go rafting. And she goes, well, is it going to be oh, warm? I said, oh, yeah, I'll give you a wetsuit. We'll be, we'll be taken care of. I said, well, where are we going to go? I said, we're going to go into the San Yam River. And uh, we're going to put right below Big Cliff down because I read a stretch in a book. And in this stretch in the book, I would tell you that I'm not a detailed person, but the stretch existed like four miles, okay rafting, three miles, dead rafting, do not go, eight miles, it's okay. 
Well, see, I just read a big cliff down. I go all the way through, and who cares about the thing in the middle? I didn't, I didn't see that part. So sure enough, we went out there. I think it was March. Um, it was cold. We'll just put it that way. We were in wetsuits. We jump on the river, and we start going through the good stuff, and then all of a sudden, it's like the area that you do not go, we went. And as we went, uh, we got pretty in trouble. In a sense that our raft went up beneath a rock. All of a sudden, it started wrapping around a rock. We lost an oar. I had my wife and my dog. I grabbed my wife and my dog, and I pulled them out as the boat sunk underneath the water and then started heading down the shore. I pulled them to the side. I looked at my boat says, this is little crazy, but that's all right. It's just a problem. It's just a trial. We'll figure it out. I run down. I get the raft. The raft has missed an oar. The oar went through some crazy white water that we could definitely not go through anymore. So I looked at my wife. I looked at my dog and says, probably a good time we go home. So I came back up and says, you know what we need to do is that uh, we're on this side of the river. We need to cross this freezing cold river. And then we need to climb up the canyon, which is about six, 700 yards. So, and it's long, deep, steep canyon. And she goes, I trust you, Mike. Okay. So sure enough, I swam the river. I threw a rope and I got my dog and I got my wife across the river. And then we started, he hove in the raft um, up the bank. Of course, she was freezing cold. And as we continued to heave and hove, this is a good time to remember the vows. I love you from death do us part. For richer, for poor, from bad rafting trips, from good rafting trips. I mean, I, all those were put in our vows before we definitely got married. And then we got to the top and we got to the top. Um, I looked at my, my wife looked at me and says, so how far are we from our car? I said, oh, we're probably about 13 miles. She goes, Mike, this is just not good. This is just not good. And I looked at her and said, what do you mean it's not good? I said, I've hiked for many, or hitchhiked for many, many years uh, without a hot girl standing next to me. I got a beautiful girl standing next to me. We could be able to get a ride in no time. Piece of cake. In fact, why don't you just put your thumb out as we hitchhike, and I'll sit back. I bet we'll get a ride within one, two, three times. And she goes, Mike, Okay, whatever you want. She sticks her thumb out. We get a ride second time. We hop in. And, you know, I said, I can get used to this marriage thing. You know, <laughs> this thing is working out pretty good. This is, this is a good life. What is that? It's just a story that we reminisce about. <laughs> a story that we look back, the times that we were first married and what we went through. And it's a story that we tell our kids when they're young, when we put them to sleep. It's a story that we tell our kids when they're old. And they sit there and laugh about it. And they remind me about it. But when we go on a rafting trip, I said, Dad, don't do what you used to do to Mom, you know, as we're going on that. It's a story that when I preach, I tell you. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just a story. If we are anchored into the past 2,000 years... And we are anchored into the future, 2000, um, in the future when Christ returns. This entire life will be nothing more than a story that we will be reminiscing over for 2000, or for eternity afterwards. This life will be nothing more than we will be reminiscing over for eternity afterwards. That's what this life would be. Number four, what took place 2,000 years ago and what we look forward to in Christ's return should be driving our emotions in the present. We are people that should be, are controlled no matter what. But we have to ask ourselves, what are we controlled by? Are, what are our emotions controlled by? It should be controlled by 2,000 years ago, and it should be controlled by the future of Christ's return, definitely not the present. If I go into a financial advisor and say, hey, I want to um, um, invest money for my retirement, he says, what you want to do is you want to build a portfolio. Portfolio, okay, well, what, is, what is portfolio? Tell me what a portfolio is. You'll say, what you want to do is you want to take percentage of your money here, percentage of your money here, and your percentage of your money here, so you'll be a well-rounded portfolio. If you wanted to build an emotional point portfolio, how do you invest 
your emotions. Let me tell you the best way to invest your emotions. Take 45% of your emotional energy and invest it 2,000 years before, (laughs) right at the foot of the cross. Take the other 45% of your emotional energy and invest it during your resurrection when you resurrect and look at God in the face and spend eternity with him. And then take 10% of your emotional energy and invest it into your present life. And what's going to take place? We'll be able to survive. Why? Because we'll be strong, strong as a rock. But we don't do that. We take 90% of our emotional energy and we invest it into the present. We give God five here and we give God five here. And what we do is we crumble in difficult times as a result. These people did not crumble in difficult times and the reason why they did not crumble in difficult times is because they were driven by something besides the present. What took place 2,000 years ago is what we should look for, and what, took place, what we should look forward to in Christ's return should be driving our emotions, it should be driving our attitude, it should be driving our decisions, it should be driving our opinions, it should be driving our position. It should mark us as human beings 2,000 years ago and then also the presence. That's what should mark us as human beings. Number five, fearless people aggressively grip the past, passionately hold on to the future, and live lightly in the present. If you aggressively grip the past, passionately hold on to the future, and lightly live in the present, what will you turn into? You know what you turn into? The Bible refers it to as an alien. You would turn into an alien, a stranger in this foreign land, somebody that is just really passing through, known as a foreigner. That's what these people of faith turned into that this is not our home. We're invested here. We are invested here, and we hold on to this a lot more lightly. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So as we are looking at this passage in Hebrews, we can ask the question, what is driving our emotions? What is driving our attitudes? What is driving our decisions? What is driving our opinions? What is driving our position? What does our emotional portfolio look like? What does our emotional portfolio look like? Because what should be driving those is 45% here of emotional energy, 45% of emotional energy here, and 10% of emotional energy here. And by being focused in this faith, you'll be strong as a rock. You'll be strong as a rock. No matter how crazy it gets, no matter how bad it gets, you'll be strong as a rock. Father, we just pray for the church during this time. I just pray that the church would proclaim that we stand on a rock that is so far beyond us. God, there is a world out that we walk around that are not standing on a rock, God, and it is our responsibility to proclaim that we are. Therefore, God, help us not to be get swept away by the present. 
Help our emotions not to get swept away by the present. Help our opinions and our desires, everything about us to get swept away by the present. But I just pray we'll be swept away by the cross of Christ that took place 2,000 years ago and the future glorification of what happens to us when we resurrected and look at you in the eyes. I just pray, God, that as a church, as individuals, that will be our source of life. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.